The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist, a columnist for The Messenger in Washington, DC, and a political analyst for news radio station KNX in Los Angeles. Uh, My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Every Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. Uh, Today, we've got a star-studded guest uh, cast uh, to talk about the two big issues uh, that are facing Americans. In the first half hour, John Bennett, uh, who is uh, editor-at-large and an opinion columnist at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call, joins us to discuss the GOP house gang that couldn't shoot straight. Then in the second half hour, CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, joins us to discuss the world at war in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Uh, But before we go to our first guest, uh, let's uh, listen to and watch this, uh, listen to this clip from Tom McCall, who is the chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee, talking about the dangers of uh, the instability in the House. Can you and uh, your fellow lawmakers provide more congressional aid to Israel when you don't have a speaker of the House? Well, it's not ideal. Uh, it wasn't my idea to oust uh, the speaker. I thought it was dangerous. You know, I, I look at the world and, and all the threats that are out there, and what kind of message are we sending to our adversaries when we can't govern, when we're dysfunctional, when we don't even have a speaker of the House? I mean, how does Chairman Xi in China look at that when he says democracy doesn't work? How's the Ayatollah look at this, uh, knowing that we cannot function properly? Um, And I think it sends a terrible message. That was uh, Tom McCall, uh, House Republican. He's chair of the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. Our guest in this half hour is John Bennett, editor-at-large and opinion columnist at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. He's here to discuss uh, the GOP House caucus that can't shoot straight. Uh, John uh, has covered Washington's political and policy debate for almost two decades, including four presidents, four speakers, going on five, I guess, seven majority leaders, and too many government shutdowns to recall, and not to mention the six presidential turkey pardons. Uh, John, uh, welcome back uh, to Deadline DC. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Uh, You just heard uh, Michael McCall, the uh, House Chair of the Foreign uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, 
Uh, is uh, the dysfunction in Congress sending a dan- dangerous message to our uh, enemies and allies? Well, yeah, I mean, anytime that one of the two legislative bodies can't legislate, it is a problem. And, um, and to Chairman McCall's point, of course, now with the fighting between uh, Israel and, and Hamas and possibly Hezbollah uh, in the north, this does become a problem because, you know, Israel, Israel gets a lot of its military hardware uh, and replacement hardware, specifically uh, for its Iron Dome missile defense system and, and a lot of other things from the U.S. Um, but, you know, the, the, the annual aid package, I looked this up the other day to Israel, it's for the last few years been around $3 billion, sometimes a little higher, 3.5, 3.6, sometimes 3.3. That's depending on different factors, including just what the Israelis uh, tell us they need at the time. Well, they need a, they're going they're about to lead they're about to need a lot more. Um, they have not launched a ground offensive into Gaza as of 3:11 p.m. Uh, today, Monday, October 16th. But their troops are massed at the border. They're they're training what they're training as much as they can uh, where they are. So this has been imminent since Saturday, but they haven't gone in. We think that's because of the hostages in in Gaza. Um, Hamas says that they will start executing hostages if those Israeli ground forces go in. But to, to Chairman McCall's point, even um, as of as of Sunday, I believe it was um, the, Isra- the Israeli Defense Force said they had fired um, over 6,000 various kinds of munitions, rockets, missiles, artillery shells into Gaza. So that's going to need to be replenished already. There, we know there were firefights. There continue to be firefights in Gaza near the Golan Heights up north. So the Israelis are asking. Uh, they, I don't think they put a number on what they need yet. Uh, they probably don't know completely. But the House can't function. The House can't move legislation right now with a temporary speaker. That's uh, Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. He's the speaker pro tempore. But his powers as an appointed speaker pro tem are very, very limited. Basically, excuse me. He can allow pro forma sessions and he can he can bring them in to um, have a speaker election, which they're going to try tomorrow. Now, if they can't get Jim Jordan, who's the second GOP speaker nominee since last week, uh, over the 217 vote threshold sometime this week, they may have to look at a plan B, uh, actually probably plan C at this point. uh, And that would that could be electing. Uh, McHenry as um, more than just an appointed speaker pro tem. His powers would expand, and it looks like he could, with Democratic agreement, uh, move some legislation. And and it, an, an Israel uh, military aid package could be first. And I think that would, you know, it would get over 300 votes easily in the House and head over to the Senate. Okay. Well, let me ask you this question. Uh, this all started uh, with a coup d'etat uh, mounted by Florida Representative Matt Getz, uh, Gates against uh, Speaker, then Speaker McCarthy. Uh, the House Majority Leader Steve Scalise uh, was nominated by the caucus. Uh, to be his successor, but uh, he couldn't secure enough Republican votes to get over the hump. And that led, has led us to uh, 
Representative Jim Jordan, uh, who is a Trump supporter, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, today, uh, Chairman Jordan sent out, or yesterday, sent out a letter to his House GOP colleagues uh, urging them to vote for him and for unity. Uh, how's that going, John? It's um, we don't know yet. We, we think that um, Mr. Jordan is inching toward 217. Um, this morning we had three holdouts. Uh, Ken Calvert, who's chairman of the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee, and Mike Rogers, who's chairman of the uh, very large House Armed Services Committee. So there are a lot of uh, Republican members that at least we think if passed his prologue and and who knows with house republicans these days uh, but the the rogers endorsement could bring some of those defense hawks and and the calvert endorsement as well those two together uh could could bring a lot of the defense hawks over to jordan's side um it, you know it depends on what um mr calvert and rogers have told uh, a lot of the Republican defense hawks about their separate conversations with Jordan over the weekend. They were both hard nosed. I mean, the headlines, I'm sure your listeners saw some of this over the weekend, was that uh, Mike Rogers was leading uh, a an, an grassroots effort for the floor vote to block McCarthy, uh, to block, excuse me, that was two speakers candidates ago, <laughs> um, to block Jordan on the floor. Uh, come Tuesday when they plan to, to take this to the floor. And then all of a sudden this morning, uh, he had moved all the way to endorsing Jordan. Uh, that's how these things go. Uh, we're not privy to these conversations. We may get snippets and leaks. Um, you know, the, the Hawks had concerns that that Jordan would would eventually pass a big spending package that included a defense cut year over year. And, and that was part of their hesitation. I, I covered defense for a long time, and I just don't think these guys would be endorsing Jordan if he wasn't talking about more defense funding year over year. Okay. We got to take a short break now to uh, let our radio listeners uh, go for a few minutes. Uh, we will stay online uh, and continue this interview with John Bennett from Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call uh, for our, our viewers on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and remind my uh, radio listeners, if you want to watch us as well as listen to us, uh, twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC right after this very short break. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is John Bennett, who's editor-at-large and opinion columnist at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. Uh, John, let me ask you this. If uh, Jim Jordan does become speaker, and hopefully we'll find out soon uh, whether or not he does, uh, what does it mean that he's been a, uh, you know, uh, an ardent supporter of Donald Trump? Uh, Donald Trump endorsed him in the speakership race. Uh, he is also uh, a hawk on such things as uh, 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 Joe Biden's impeachment. If he 
does become speaker, uh, what does that mean? Uh, it seems to me it just, you know, grinds on to more gridlock. Yes, uh, that's I think you're right, Brad. This is not going to turn on the spigot of bipartisan deal making and bipartisan legislation. The House is not going to become a, a geyser of bipartisanship. It's it's going to go the other way somehow. Um, you know, it's not like these bills. Kevin McCarthy, the the ousted speaker, uh, you know, he's been on a bit of a media blitz, and you know, he's talking about all the bills that House Republicans passed. That was part of his allies. Uh, arguments right before the final vote that ousted him was, you know, look at all the legislation we passed, guys, and you got a lot of what you've asked for here. And the speaker has has listened to you and put a lot of that in these in these in these bills. But they were dead on arrival in the Senate and the White House was issuing veto threat after veto threat after veto threat. Um, so more of that, I think, is is what to expect, especially um, going into an election year with a with a very thin um, you know, he, the speaker now can only lose four Republicans on the floor. So it's a razor thin majority. It's a competitive map. It, that was not the case, you know, a year and a half ago when, when we were, when, uh, prognosticators were looking ahead to 2024, uh, the map was very red. It was very friendly for Republicans. Uh, of course we got the Roe versus Wade, uh, overturning from the Supreme court. And that kind of, that shook the whole board that changed everything. Sure did. And, and this is not a good look right now. And uh, but Jordan's not, you know, he's not going to go to Benny Thompson and and start passing bills. He's not going to, you know, pass uh, some kind of tax cut bill that's going to get 85 to 100 Democrats. Uh, if we get bills to keep the government open and and get the military paid, defense authorization bill, you know, those those must pass things. And aid to Israel, I would put on that list, and maybe some kind of Ukraine aid. Um, and again, the government doesn't shut down while Speaker Jordan has the gavel. It's probably a successful house. Well, yeah, that's the next thing. I mean, let's again assume Jordan is in fact the next speaker. Uh, we've got what, uh, about a month, I guess the deadline's November 15th. Uh, is how, how are they ever going to come to an agreement on the uh, uh, continuing the federal operations of the federal government uh, with a, a real hawk like uh, Jordan running the reins in the House? Well, I think one other thing to to prevent a government shutdown or and and to to take that sort of Damocles um, off whoever's in the speakership. Let's assume it's Jordan. You know, maybe an Israeli aid bill moves first, and while the Senate is processing that, maybe changing it and sending it back, uh, the House, I, I, I get the sense they're going to change the rule to vacate uh, the speakership. So that's what they could do second under a Speaker Jordan. And there's bipartisan support. That can get 217 or, or whatever the threshold is. It probably has easily over 300 votes. Um, and, and, and just raise that threshold so it's not one member that can trigger that vote. And then, you know, all the Democrats or when it, if it flips uh, in 2024, if it's Democrats in the majority, they're not going to want a one vote threshold. And then all the Republicans vote with, you know, eight, nine, 10 progressives and and ask and oust say, uh, a speaker, Hakeem Jeffries. So there's plenty of reason uh, to change it. And, and the other a lot of the reason from the institutionalists in the House is Again, like we were saying, the House has to function. It has to be able to pass legislation. 
keep the government open. And when an ally finds itself uh, in an unexpected war, the House needs to be there ready to, to stand by the ally and, and, and get them the, the combat equipment they need to fight. And, and I, I think that's a, a very persuasive argument uh, to, to change that rule and raise the, th the threshold. Okay. You said uh, that uh, there would be easy passage in the House of uh, Israeli uh, aid bill. Uh, right now, I've seen news reports that uh, the Republican, uh, that the Russians are pushing hard on the Ukrainians. Uh, they're running out of such things as artillery shells and other basic kinds of ammunition. Uh, Ukraine's getting kind of lost in the shuffle here, uh, but they're at a perilous time. What are the prospects for the House and Jim Jordan coming through if he's speaker with some kind of Ukrainian aid? Well, that is very much an open question. And he has been, Jordan has been skeptical of, of additional Ukraine aid. And um, again, I covered the defense sector. I covered both the House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee and the House Armed Services Committee uh, for over a decade. And I, I just can't imagine that, that Mr. Calvert and, and Mr. Rogers um, don't have some kind of agreement, and I'm sure they'll say more when they get to the Capitol. Uh, for there's a meeting tonight, House Republicans around 6:30, and I'm sure they'll talk more about what they heard from Jordan uh, in their private conversations. Um, but I would assume that they have some kind of agreement on Ukraine aid uh, that 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 he's going uh, to pass something. It might not be as as large and robust uh, as those two gentlemen would like, but um, you know they're going to have to answer those questions this week. About, about why they went from, from really vigorous no's to endorsing uh, Jordan. Um, so, you know, it, it could pass. It has the votes to pass as long as, again, they don't try to, to out the re conservative Republicans do not try to oust Jordan for passing it perhaps with mostly uh, Democratic votes. If that threshold is raised to, say, 25, then they simply wouldn't have the votes uh, to oust Jordan if he passes a Ukraine bill. Um, they'll just have to go on Fox News and Newsmax and call him a rhino and, and everything they usually do, even though all of those eight that ousted McCarthy um, are backing Jordan and McCarthy's also backing Jordan. So as you can see, this is, this, is a, this is a spider web right now. There are no easy you know, associations and coalitions, uh, and, and this thing could still go any way. Who knows what happens in that room tonight, for example? Okay. Uh, one last question, John. We've got about um, 30 seconds. Uh, uh, is it too, should the Republicans be worried about the uh, impact this will have on trying to hold their majority in the House in uh, 2024? Or is this just too early to make that assessment? It's a long time away, isn't it? And, you know, how many crises and, and who knows how many speakers may we have between now and election day. Um, you know, if, if they can't get that threshold raised, then you can't safely say today that that we won't be doing this again, you know, in early January or mid-December if, if, if Jordan agrees to some kind of omnibus spending package like Washington usually does right before the holiday season. And I've talked to a lot of conservatives on the Hill who say, uh-uh, that ain't gonna work. And John, we unfortunately were out of time. I hope you can uh, join us again soon uh, and talk about these issues, which are not going to go away, probably. 
Uh, we'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon right after this very short break. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we talked about domestic politics in the first half hour. Now we're going to switch over and discuss the uh, national security issues uh, with the world at war in Eastern Europe and in the Middle East uh, with CNN military analyst uh, Cedric Layton. Before we get to Colonel Layton, though, we're going to uh, listen to this clip uh, from former President Trump. Uh, where he uh, criticized, uh, where he praised Hamas, if you can believe that, uh, and Hezbollah, and uh, bashed uh, a pr uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. I'll never forget that Bibi Netanyahu let us down. That was a very terrible thing. I will say that they've got to straighten it out because they're fighting potentially a very big force. They're fighting potentially Iran. And when they have people saying the wrong things, everything they say is being digested by these people because they're vicious and they're smart. And boy, are they vicious because nobody's ever seen the kind of sight that we've seen. But they cannot play games. So we were disappointed by that, very disappointed. But we did the job ourselves, and it was absolute precision, magnificent, beautiful job. And then uh, Bibi tried to take credit for it. That wasn't good. That didn't make me feel too good, but that's all right. So they got to strengthen themselves up. And they said, gee, I hope Hezbollah doesn't attack from the north because that's the most vulnerable spot. I said, wait a minute. You know, Hezbollah is very smart. They're all very smart. The press doesn't like when they say it. You know, I said that President Xi of China, 1.4 billion people, he controls it with an iron fist. I said, he's a very smart man. They killed me the next day. I said he was smart. What am I going to say? But Hezbollah, they're very smart. And they have a national defense minister or somebody saying, I hope Hezbollah doesn't attack us from the north. So the following morning they attacked. They might not have been doing it, but if you listen to this jerk, you would attack from the north because he said that's our weak spot. That, of course, was the former failed president, uh, Donald Trump, uh, who to me is sounding increasingly er erratic. Um, getting more so all the time. Uh, our guest in this half hour uh, is uh, CNN military analyst, uh, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, he is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He founded the Federal Cedric Layton Associates after serving in the U.S. Air Force for 25 years as an intelligence officer. His Twitter handle is at uh, Cedric Layton, uh, all one word. Uh, that's uh, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. Uh, and his website is CedricLayton.com. Welcome back to uh, Deadline DC, uh, Cedric. A uh, lot to talk about today. Yes, there sure is, Brad. Well, thanks so much for having me again. Yeah. You know, as I was listening to that clip from uh, Donald Trump, uh, I was thinking he sounds increasingly erratic. 
and doesn't sound like the kind of guy that you'd be, want to have uh, running our national security apparatus again as president during these dark and troubled times. What's your take? Well, it's certainly concerning when you hear, uh, you know, kind of a wondering from one uh subset of subjects to another subset of subjects and uh, then in the way he did it and how he spoke about uh, uh, Hezbollah and uh, you know talked about Netanyahu was more of a person seemed like an airing of personal grievances uh, more than anything else uh, so yeah it was very erratic very uh, disconcerting you know for you know somebody who's wanting to become commander-in-chief again uh, and it it really is something that won't augur well for stability in the world if, in fact, he does become president again. Okay, uh, let's start with this. Uh, you served in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer. And my question to you is, how, did, how were the Israelis caught by surprise? I mean, this was a very organized attack out of Gaza uh, by Hamas. Uh, they had ground troops. Uh, they, uh, you know, see it attacks from the sea. They even had paragliders. And I mean, it sounds to me there, I don't know how many Hamas uh, troops there were that mounted this invasion, but it seems to me it must have taken a lot of time and trouble from the organize these things. So how does these, how do the Israelis miss this? Well, there's several ways the things can be missed in intelligence, and uh, you know, intelligence is one part collection, one part analysis, another part interpretation, and then the third part is uh, reaction in the form of you know, is the intelligence that you've received actionable, and then do the policymakers do the right thing with it? So there are several areas where things could have gone wrong, and in some cases, horribly wrong for uh, you know this this particular chain of events. Uh, my initial take on it is uh, that Israelis should have definitely picked up on something uh, relating to this. It was very large. There were, you know, at best counts that I've seen so far, uh, over a thousand uh, Hamas fighters that crossed the fenced border uh, from Gaza into into Israel, into southern Israel. Uh, it is very clear that they also knew exactly where they were supposed to go. So they had specific objectives. Um, it seems that uh, large parts of the operation were kept hidden even from other members of Hamas. Uh, so they had a, a basically compartmented operations, which allowed them to practice really good operational security. And then finally, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that uh, their intelligence was really, really good. Uh, there are maps of, of areas, uh, you know, the different uh, kibbutzim that they were able to uh, raid and attack. Uh, they, they had some very detailed maps, including also of military installations, Israeli military installations. So the real problem that the Israelis had was they kind of got what I would call a semi-American disease, and that is relying way too much on automation uh, to, uh, in essence, do their intel work for them and also to protect them for, in, in an operational sense. Uh, so automation uh, can definitely be a, an enhancement to intelligence gathering, but it has to be augmented by 
analysts and uh, collection specialists who understand the target that they're dealing with. The Israelis have a lot of really smart people who have worked the Palestinian target, uh, in especially the Hamas target, uh, for many, many years. So they know this very much uh, kind of like they would know a friend or a neighbor. But uh, the problem is, is that what they collected and how it was analyzed did not quite match with people's preconceived notions. And that uh, becomes another problem. Uh, preconceived notions, especially by consumers of intelligence, can be a real problem uh, when it comes to actually interpreting the intelligence correctly and acting on it in a way that, uh, that would be useful. Okay, right now we have a situation where there are thousands of Israeli tanks and troops uh, assembled uh, just north of Gaza. Uh, yesterday, uh, uh, President Biden was on 60 Minutes, uh, and one of the things he said during his interview is he warned Israel against seizing Gaza. Uh, what are the Israelis, uh, do they know what they're going to do? Why are they waiting? Yes, that's a really good, two really good questions. Uh, do they know what they're going to do? Um, hopefully, uh, in some ways, yes, they do. They have military objectives, and those objectives include in a, a, what would be termed decapitating Hamas. In other words, taking out the leadership uh, and eliminating it as a political or military force. So that's a, a pretty... Uh, clear goal, uh, but the execution of that is going to be very problematic. As far as how, you know, why are they waiting, there are several factors at play here. One is the weather. Uh, there were significant rainstorms overnight in the Gaza area, so that, uh, you know, has an impact. But the other part of it is, is that they are waiting for all the diplomatic uh, maneuvers to be finished. Uh, there is a possibility that President Biden may visit Israel in the next few days. Uh, it's not confirmed, but there are lots of uh, talk. There's lots of talk from Israel. There's some talk in Washington about it. Uh, and uh, it's certainly clear that Secretary of State Blinken is moving around uh, to handle a type of shuttle diplomacy. And that of course, becomes a key issue, and they don't. The Israelis don't want to be doing military operations while these efforts are underway. Okay, uh, we are going to uh, continue to talk about uh, national security crises. Uh, we're going. To, we've talked about Israel. We're going to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, our guest is Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, you've probably seen him on CNN, uh, where he is uh, very busy these days doing analysis of the situations uh, in Israel and Ukraine. Uh, we're going to take a short break now to give our radio listeners a vacation. If you're watching us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, stay tuned because we're going to be continuing the interview right after this very short break. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I just want to remind our radio listeners that if you want to watch us as well as listen to us, uh, you can view the show at twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon or on facebook.com front slash Deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. Our guests in this half hour is CNN military analyst, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. 
we've been talking about the crisis in the Middle East. Now we're going to uh, talk about the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, what is the situation currently in Ukraine? Uh, the Ukraine, uh, because of uh, congressional inactivity, which we discussed in the first half hour, and because of the media focus on the Middle East, uh, has sort of got lost in the shuffle. Uh, what's going on there right now, Colonel Layton? Well, Brad, the big issue is that uh, Ukraine is valiantly holding on to all of its uh, all of the territory that it currently controls. The Russians have tried uh, several have made several attempts to try to dislodge Ukrainian forces, especially from the area south of Bakhmut. There's a town called Avdivka, and Avdivka has been the scene of some uh, fairly heavy fighting in the last uh, few days. Uh, but so far. The Ukrainians have been able to repulse the Russians in that area. So that's in the east of, of Ukraine. In the south, there have been several uh, more efforts by the Ukrainians to uh, dislodge uh, the Russians from Crimea. Now, that's an ultimate goal. They're not going to do that overnight. It'll take a long time for them to do it militarily if they can ever actually, actually be successful at it. But what they are doing is they're continuing some of their strikes against Russian military targets in Crimea and also in the areas that feed into Crimea, the land bridge between the Donbas in the southeast and, uh, and Crimea, and all the connections that the uh, Russians have to their forces that are on the southern front, because what that means is if they can cut those forces off or at least hinder the supply lines to those forces, it's going to make it a lot more difficult for the Russians to proceed with offensive operations in the south. Uh, the Ukrainians are continuing their very slow-paced counteroffensive, uh, but it, it has achieved some uh, success. Uh, they were uh, dealing with uh, coming close to the town of Tokmak, which would be a, a fairly strategic uh, choke point uh, that would, uh, you know, for the Russians, and that would enable, if the Ukrainians were to capture that, that would enable them to actually put a large portion of uh, southern Ukraine, now occupied by Russia, under uh, Ukrainian artillery control, uh, not territorial control, but it would allow Ukrainians to fire into that area. But what Ukraine needs now is uh, basically weapons support, continued support from the West. If it doesn't get that support, it's going to be really difficult for Ukraine to sustain this level of fighting. One thing that has happened in that department is that Ukrainian F-16 pilots have begun their training in the United States. And that is, uh, of course, a major development uh, given the reluctance at first uh, by the Biden administration and by the NATO allies to provide F-16s and F-16 training uh, to Ukraine. Okay, uh, we, in the first half hour of the show, we had uh, John, uh, John Bennett, uh, an editor-at-large at, large at uh, Congressional Quarterly who covers foreign policy issues. We were talking to him about the mess in the House of Representatives. And, you know, my question is, uh, John, I asked him directly, I asked him, about uh, if the Republicans in the House ever get their act together, uh, whether they would uh, react quickly to military aid uh, for Israel. And John said, yeah, if they ever get organized, they'll do that in a heartbeat. Uh, then I asked the same question about Ukraine. Uh, and John said that is a lot more complicated. 
Uh, right now, the uh, leading candidate to be Speaker of the Day in the Republican caucus meets tonight uh, is Jim Jordan, uh, who is uh, a hardliner uh, when it comes to opposing uh, aid to Ukraine. Uh, by tomorrow, he may or may not be the next speaker, depending on how many uh, votes he uh, is able to round up in the next 24 hours. Uh, but, uh, you know, John's opinion was, you know, is Ukraine ad, aid is a lot more problematic than Israeli ad with aid, which he says pretty much everybody's going to vote for. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess my question here is, it seems to me that we're getting the United States is getting to a point uh, where there have been all sorts of discussions about uh, whether or not we can uh, the United States as a government can afford uh, to spend so much money on Ukraine. And that's uh, something uh, Jim Jordan seems to feel strongly about. Uh, and we're going to on top of that, we're going to spend uh, you know, more money on military aid to Israel. I mean, is the United States overextended w in the Ukraine and the Middle East? It seems to me that it just, just can't keep on going like this. Well, we have to be careful. Uh, you know, clearly we have to be careful and in terms of uh, how we uh, make our industrial defense industrial base uh, provide the things that we need. The problem that you run into is Israel is one thing, you know, and of course, like you mentioned, uh, political support for Israel is is pretty strong on both sides of the aisle. When it comes to Ukraine, it's very interesting to me because back in the Cold War days, we were able to support Israel and we were able to support ourselves and our Western European allies, in, especially in the NATO alliance, against the Soviet Union at the time. This is basically, the, in many ways, quite similar. It's not exactly the same thing, but it, it's very similar. And the good news is, in this department, is that uh, the fighting is in Ukraine, which used to be part of the Soviet Union. Uh, at that time, you know, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, there was no thought of a free and independent Ukraine. Well, Fast forward to 2023, there is a free and independent Ukraine. And it is a free and independent Ukraine because it is fighting for its survival. I, if Ronald Reagan were here, I can guarantee you he would be in favor of providing support to Ukraine. So for the Republicans who are voicing reluctance to empire. support it becomes it becomes critical uh, that they understand that uh, Ukraine is the key to providing security for the rest of Europe. I, the idea that Ukraine is not important is a false idea. Ukraine is probably the most important strategic issue that is facing us at the moment. Israel is important, it's quite important, but Ukraine is the key to Europe. And if Ukraine were to fall to the Russians, it would open up the way for Russia to take control of large portions of Europe once again. And all the gains that were made under Reagan and Bush 41 uh, and the Western leaders that came together to reunify Germany and expand NATO, all of that would go away. 
and the NATO expansion that has just recently been achieved under President Biden with uh, Finland and probably soon, hopefully soon, Sweden coming into it, that becomes an, another thing that, that also becomes more tenuous if the United States doesn't support Ukraine. So Ukraine is a strategic imperative of the first order. Uh, and anyone who fails to see that in the political world is either a Putin agent or somebody who doesn't understand how the world really works. Okay, I'm gonna ask you this question. It crossed my mind, uh, we've got the United States spending billions of dollars in Ukraine. We spend billions of dollars uh, supporting Israel. And my guess is there's gonna be even more money for Israel. You know, it just crossed my mind while the world is at war in two different places, if some Chinese general somewhere is thinking, boy, this would be a perfect time to take a run at Taiwan. I mean, you, you know, America's pretty much bogged down. We've sent two carrier battle groups to the Middle East. Um, and it just strikes me that chi this gives the Chinese an opportunity to make uh, mischief. Uh, I don't know if they do it or not, but if they if they do, where is our priority? Is it in the Far East? Is it in the Middle East in, or in Eastern Europe? And there's just a limit to how much the United States can do. Well, that's where strong alliances come into, into play. Yeah. And it becomes really important to have those strong alliances there. But the top priority at the moment, and these priorities can shift, would be Ukraine, then Israel. Uh, now, if Taiwan happens, then it would become Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel, in my view. Colonel Layton, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I have a feeling we might be provided, uh, prevailing on you to return again in the near future, because I don't think the world, the world is at war now, and I don't see the crisis lessening anytime soon. So I want to thank you for joining us, and thank you in advance for joining us in the future. Uh, that's it for today. I want to thank our executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, who makes sure the trains run on time and the show stays online. And our guest, Colonel Cedric Layton and John Bennett for Roll Call. We'll be back next Monday on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon if the creek don't rise uh, and another war doesn't start.